This is a humble man recording. Scano, Sego, Ani, you're listening to the Red Road Podcast with Courtney Sky and Hayden King. TGIF, Courtney. Good afternoon, Hayden. It's Friday afternoon. It is. It's not only Friday afternoon, it's like the first day and the end of Mercury retrograde. It's the end of the fiscal. It's, it's all coming at us. It's the end of times. But the sun is shining. It is mm-hmm. a beautiful day. We all deserve a very long weekend after... How many weeks is Mercury in retrograde going for? It was like four or five weeks. I don't know exactly it how long. It was a long time. It was a long time. It was, it was a long, a- stressful time. Yeah, you become quite the astrology hope. I, you know, <laughs> when we recorded our astrology podcast, obviously for those who listened to it, I was deeply skeptical. And then at the the end of, or I guess the beginning of last, this month or the end of last month, half a dozen of my friends started warning me about Mercury and retrograde. I didn't realize I had so many astrology <laughs> convert friends mm-hmm. and I laughed at them. And then my entire month blew up, and I suddenly realized this has to be more than a coincidence. Yes. So I'm glad it's over, and I'm and uh, if my life returns to normal, if all of our lives return to normal, then then maybe that's another argument for astrology. Yes. Yes. It's also guess what? It's Aries season. What? I don't know what that means. It means it's the time of the astrological season where my sun sign is the most prominent. I see. So all of your qualities are amplified. Yes. That's like in Leo season when you grow a mustache. <laughs> I'm growing a mustache again. My mu- the mustache, I got I to gotta bring back the mustache. Yeah. So what are, you're not going to dye your hair pink again? Um, I am going to dye my hair pink again. I'm waiting for it to fade. And then I'm going to keep it pink. And I'm going to... Um, yeah, you're not actually, you're not usually like your best self, but you're like your most self, I I think during your season. So the most like, remember all those like negative qualities that you don't like about me, they're just going to (laughs) be amplified and I'm going to keep doing things. So what I've done is I've booked a lot of travel. I've booked a lot of things. we don't have to commute together. Yeah. We, you know, um, I have some trips coming up. Amazing. I'm. So Aries season is just time to hit the road. Time to hit the road, time to party, time to like uh, have a lot of fun, be loud and like unpredictable, have a lot of crushes and do all that kind of stuff. Look out. Yeah. Change your mind a lot. Okay. All Mm -hmm. right. So you're you're going away. Yes. I'm going to, um, where are we going again? Vienna. I'm going to Austria. Amazing. Um, for a weekish, I can't remember exactly how long. Um, there's some debate if I'm going on another work trip before then. We'll see. And yeah, but I've kind of like thrown my hat to the wind, and I booked not only that travel, I booked some um, other travel to um, camp in the where the giant redwoods are. Hmm. That kind of stuff. All of this to say. We're not going to be commuting right, as much. Right. Well, we're commuting less and less because you got a new job mm-hmm. and uh, you commute less and you're traveling a little bit. So we haven't recorded a podcast for a while, actually. Mm-hmm. So 
we're sorry to our listeners, our, our loyal listeners that wait for these podcasts and they just don't arrive. Uh, we're mm-hmm. working on it. But this is going to be our last podcast for maybe two weeks at least. Something mm-hmm. like that. Something like that. I think maybe next week we'll have time for one. We'll have to see. You're going to be away. I mean, I'm going to Ottawa. It's not really away. Well, it's not the red road. That's true. <clears throat> so You're always on the red road, Courtney. You might be. Um, I refuse. So we should talk about whether or not this podcast needs to have seasons because I feel like we just, I feel like we're getting better at the podcast in the first, when we first started recording it, we were very disorganized and had to make all kinds of edits and cuts and now we just talk and don't make any edits Mm -hmm. and it it seems we've smoothed out some wrinkles. Mm -hmm. Doesn't that mean that we should move into a second season when people are like, oh, their second season was way better than their first? (laughs) something like that you just want to cut our losses on everything we've yeah, done so yeah, far yeah, and be yeah, like yeah, yeah. we need to move Start on fresh. second season um the, equ- the equinox maybe that'll be our seasons <laughs> we haven't done right a, yes truly red road style we haven't done one this will be so let's do that here we go season two red road <laughs> we're here yeah okay your first episode of season <laughs> two you have your first episode and then your next your next episode three weeks later yeah it makes total good. sense yeah um, all right. Well, we'll, we'll, maybe we'll, we'll, I don't know what we'll do. We'll just keep going, I guess. We'll keep on. Yeah. So, on this uh, beautiful Friday afternoon, we started to ha- we actually started to have a conversation that we decided we'd bring into the podcast car a few hours ago. Um, uh, you are a part of the Yellowhead Institute as a research fellow, and we've, we've invited you to sit on the... Uh, advisory committee for a a school or a a land and water reclamation Mm -hmm. gathering that we're having in the in the Mm -hmm. summer targeting more young people youngish youth and so you're sitting on that advisory committee and we had a meeting today Mm -hmm. and that meeting was to determine where we were going to host this gathering Mm -hmm. and i am very much of the opinion that we should host it on the land so we're talking about land and water defense let's have the school let's have the gathering whatever we call it on the actual land and in that call, you said, you know what, Hayden? Well, what did you say? Well, I, so I think it had to do with very specific ways that we were framing the different types of options that are to host an event, right? So there's, you can have things that are um, in the bush, or you can have things that are in institutions or in urban spaces, in boardrooms. And I think that was the kind of debate that we were having. And you're very much, let's go be in the bush. And the and I didn't agree with the reasons that you're putting forward to have it in the bush, that there's something inherently more indigenous or more native, and that there's something that only has value in the bush versus uh, urban spaces, and that somehow only assertions of jurisdiction can happen in uh, like in relation to crown land or in relation to you know, whatever type of, you know, remote or more wilderness type events are, that there's, and I think that you were putting forward that there's none of that reclamation or existence to be had, specifically in Toronto. And I raised a specific criticism that you were saying that you wanted to be on land and near water in my territory arm's length to one of the great lakes one of the you know one of the largest freshwater lakes in the world 
in a territory where we know that like the bones of our shared ancestors are to say that that is not indigenous space okay so I would like to correct many things about yes. what you said, but let's not have the conversation in the past. Yes. Let's have the moving forward. This is the this is the our conversation today. We're we're talking about urban spaces and the city mm -hmm. as being indigenous spaces or not indigenous spaces, or okay. put another way, the city versus the country, the bush, the bush. That's what this episode is all about. Mm -hmm. So, um, just. Picking up on this discussion, I, I in no way am <laughs> saying that urban spaces or cities are not indigenous spaces. I absolutely <laughs> believe that they are and that we should be advocating for them. And um, urban presence is significant and um, indigenous. I'm not creating any essentialist... Uh, notion of what it means to yeah. be indigenous or you're more indigenous mm -hmm. in the bush than not in the bush mm -hmm. but what I am saying mm -hmm. is that if we're trying to host a land and water uh, defense or reclamation gathering and we have an opportunity to do it actually on the land then mm -hmm. there's an, a really important trend I think happening in education on land-based education that is appropriate to this circumstance and I would feel yes it makes much more sense to do it in the bush as opposed to what I consider to be whether you believe or whether you share this interpretation or not cities as you know effectively kind of sacrifice zones you know if you could have your choice of where you're going to do a land and water defense reclamation gathering you're going to do it in a concrete city in a boardroom on the 11th floor of a Ryerson University building or are you going to have it out on the land where you can hunt and be comfortable and and uh, breathe a clean air and feel the sunshine on your face um, and all of the uh, all of the the benefits that the that 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 does for your spirit uh, so that was my point I don't think that being in the wilderness has you don't think it has those benefits? I think it has. I'm not saying it doesn't have those benefits, but I'm saying I think it doesn't. It doesn't have. It's not the only place where you can have those conversations. And I think that, like, I think when we center these conversations around, like, that that's the place we're most at home, or that's that's the that's the place where like it happens best. It's not inclusive, or it's not reflective of the fact there's a lot of people that can't get there, and it's not accessible to. Right. So like. There, people don't have access to those land-based pieces. They don't have that they will construct and exist and live in an indigenous reality that might not be within that kind of space, right? So, like, I'm not trying to say that we shouldn't strive for that. That we should be, you know, we can have these practices. We can do those types of things. But I think that we do a disservice to a lot of people that have a lived reality that they do have a lot of. I guess insecurities with feeling like they are not native enough to mm -hmm. because they don't have those same skills to draw on right I can see the need to like you know cultivate that and develop that but to say that that is the ideal or the ultimate and that's the best places a, a hierarchy and establishes these kinds of rigors around what is good what is bad what is Indian what is not and I think that like to say that that's the only place that can happen I don't, I don't agree with that. 
Yeah, I don't think it's it's the only place that can happen. And I know I don't want to dwell on this point about where it's, it would be more beneficial uh, to have it because obviously I you, you know where I what where I stand yeah. on this. But I, you know, there's this there's this show on APTN. It's called Merchants of the Wild. I don't know if you you've seen it or you heard about it. One of our longtime listeners, Shane Palace, was uh, responsible for putting that show together. So anyway, this is a show that brings, I think it's eight uh, mostly urban youth together in, outside of, uh, well, it's in um, Nishnabek territory in central Ontario. And they live in the, they learn how to build birch bark canoes, they learn how to build lean-tos, they learn how to start fires, they learn how to hunt and fish. Um, and I definitely think that there is a thirst for this. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously there is. People want to get back on the land and mm-hmm. it's not in any romantic desire although for some people mm-hmm. it probably is romantic desire to just go back to this land-based living all the time um, but it de- I think that there is definitely that desire to, to, to reconnect and so when we frame this as you know there are people in cities that are not comfortable in those spaces very much very true I get it there's accessibility concerns there are people that were raised in urban centers and that's all they know but do you not think that there is that that deep desire among a lot of native people and especially native young people to get into the bush? Oh yeah, for sure. There's tons. And I think everyone should have access to the land and I think they should have that and they should have those opportunities. Do I think that like the, you know the, the utility of land-based education or doing that kind of work around um, you know having um, that type of event. I don't know whether that is conducive to like your policy school that you're thinking of having like I think that you know are you going to be constructing a birch bark canoe and talking about how that has to do with the rights recognition yes. framework and all that kind of stuff like I get it that's you know that's one thing but like I think that there's a that there are I don't know it's, it's hard for me because I just see so often how people romanticize and how people don't have a like a concrete idea of like what it means to actually you know provide the majority of your own food for yourself that kind of stuff like my family's been farming for generations we grow a significant amount of our own food we have a lot of assertions of food sovereignty in my family and those beliefs and I continue to have these experiences right where we're always willing to educate people anyone who wants to help more than welcome to come but a lot of people don't come because they like don't like to be hot don't like to get stung with by tomato bugs, like that kind of stuff. Like those people are not Indians. Well, I'm gonna throw <laughs> as many tomato bugs as I can find at you, and you can get stung by them. But those are the kinds of things, right? And it's so it's like, and it is that kind of there's a, that practicality of like, are you gonna put on an event and are you gonna blow your budget on like bug spray? Is everyone gonna want to be there and talk about like policy issues and have like these robust debates and that kind of stuff, and then get bit by horse flies? Like there's that kind of element to yeah, it too, right? There's like that's a physical definitely part of it. I mean. You know, being yeah. bit by horse flies as an epistemology <laughs> or an epistemological framework. That's what I'm talking about because I, I think that what the value of a land-based education brings is really forcing us mm-hmm. to rethink our how we learn, mm-hmm. what our methods for learning are, and what our methods for teaching are. Mm-hmm. And so doing it on the land 
um, learning from the land, how the land moves and how, how, how non-human relations move on the land and act on the land and how we can learn from, from those creatures and how that informs our laws, how it informs our policy. Um, being there and being in those contexts actually changes the way that we think. Yeah. And for me, that's really, really valuable because instead we're always in these sterile places, which are colonial spaces, and the environment impacts how we learn, how we teach, how we think. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think it's really useful to break out of that. And, to, and it's anti-colonial mm-hmm. um, to move towards uh, land-based teaching and, and learning context, I think. But, like, that's the thing too, right? But you can't talk... But, like, it's still, like, so hard for me to not see that as also being possible within urban spaces. Because you talk about how, like, land adapts or how creation reacts to what people put in front of it. And especially talking about, like, strategizing or talking about building resiliency. Like, I feel like the urban space is a really prime example where we need to think more about that, right? Like, I think about how I was growing up and I never... I never really connected the idea of like reclaiming spaces where urban environments have taken over to think of our territory outside of reserve spaces or or you know assertions of jurisdiction that go beyond taking back crown land and all that kind of stuff that there's this that the present in space and how we construct and how we interact and the life and the vibrancy that exists among pe- amongst people but also within the space where they are, like that to me is possible in urban spaces. It happens all the time, and there's a there's an element of modernity to saying that like indigenous people exist in both of these spaces or in, and in between all these spaces, and it doesn't negate like a, a the ability of us to pursue our and define ourselves in in a way that is valid today that isn't. A romanticized or like a reconstruction of the past or you know these ideas of you know whatever it means to take back the land which is always just like wilderness spaces and never about urban spaces yeah yeah now if this particular gathering was on urban land reclamation mm-hmm. I could definitely see mm-hmm. the tighter link um, but it is by and large you know trying to assert jurisdiction or thinking about the tools and strategies to assert assert jurisdiction over our traditional territories. And you're right that urban spaces are in our territories. Um, That's, I guess, just not how the the project was conceptualized. Now, I do think that there is space for indigeneity in the city and land-based indigeneity and indigenous education in the city. I mean, I tan hides in the city. People are boiling sap in the city. There's a sweat lodge on a rooftop in the city of Toronto. Um, all of that is possible, and I think maybe in the in the city in Toronto in particular, there's it's mm-hmm. it's more likely than other places. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know a guy that uh, shot a deer with a bow in the Humber <laughs> Valley, uh, and and carried a deer home uh, uh, down through traffic. So that you know that type of existence is ongoing mm-hmm. and exists, and uh, it's more challenging. It's more fraught. Mm-hmm. Uh, it requires more adaptability and resourcefulness. Um, and I think, like, the space of, like, having... It, like, And the whole idea of where does the... What is the... 
what was the preposition what is the historical context of urbanization for indigenous people as well what does that mean how is that particularly impacted on women women who were um you know lost status through the indian act that had to leave communities that had to reconstruct and build new lives outside of reserve territory that had to continue to exist and survive and exist in urban spaces and that piece of resilience I hate the word resilience but like the idea of resilience constructing actively creating defining for ourselves like what our communities look like where they look where where they exist and how they interact and the practices that you're talking about how do we bring those wherever we go and how are those tools utilized in an effective way and how we're challenging and solving our problems no matter where we are that I think that's really important and I think to like the idea of people having takeaways from an event or knowledge gathering you want them to not think that the things that they're learning are stagnant or dependent upon a place you want them to be able to be portable and transmittable to a variety of different contexts and I think that also you know Toronto is a very specific example but there are a lot of rural spaces and a lot of um you know small towns I think specifically of like you know I was just in Dryden you know possibly going to Red Lake Thunder Bay these communities are the front lines of not only violence against indigenous women but criminalization of indigenous people and that they are spaces that are fraught with racism and that idea of culture, you know, the annihilation of our people by the state with criminalization, but racism as well, that that is important as well. And strategizing and surviving and talking about that specifically, about violence specifically and state violence explicitly is an important part of establishing safety for our nations, asserting nationhood and jurisdiction. Oh, I, I agree. That, yeah. all, that all should be done. But let's do it, like, <laughs> far away from the cops and far away from the violence of the settler state. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's obviously the argument, and, you know, Susan Blight and I do this in mm -hmm. the Ogima Mikina project where we... Historically inaccurate. <laughs> what? It's like, you erase the Haudenosaunee people, but continue. Well, I didn't even... Okay, so we, yeah. re, you know, we... Our whole... The whole mm -hmm. philosophy of our project is to reinsert Indigenous presence in city spaces to... Yeah. Uh, resist mm -hmm. that erasure and to reestablish our presence. Mm -hmm. um, yes, we do it in Nishnabemo and not Ginyangahaga or, or any other Haudenosaunee language. But um, mm -hmm. so I, I see the value in that. I'm not saying that we got all like move out of cities and go back to the land mm -hmm. to be indigenous. Um, and we do need to be thinking, as you say, about the the violence and the criminalization that accompanies any attempt to be on the land or to practice mm -hmm. land based education or or land-based activities of any kind. I think we should be doing those things. Um, but I think, again, I'll just reiterate that place matters to how you learn. Mm -hmm. And um, it, it, it matters to me, and I would, I would like to, to continue thinking about and, yeah. and doing that work where, where we can um, be, be learning on the land. Because mm -hmm. I, I just do not accept that, again, sitting in an uncomfortable mm -hmm. plastic chair under fluorescent <laughs> lights uh, with sterile air eating takeout pizza pizza and drinking from Tim Horton's cups is a model of indigenous education. No, 
No, but you can definitely talk about, and that's the thing we just finished talking about too, right? You can bring in an existing, create and construct whatever you need to do within urban spaces, right? Like you can do that. Like you can have, you can like corn and you can do all of these things and you can yeah. talk about what's indigenous to the territory and cook with that. And you can, you know, the place where we're at, we're talking about Toronto and like, you know, in the heart of the Great Lakes, the biodiversity is extreme and we can do all of those things you know within relation to this territory right and the land that's here and what's there what can be what was here before what should be here now those are really important ideas that I think deserve to be explored and I think if you're talking about you know pushing an envelope or being brave in your assertions then I think that's the kind of you know then you're not thinking about like what is going to be uh, a methodology that is very accepted or you know this um, you're talking about like what is the next thing what's going to push this envelope even more and if it is assertions of jurisdiction in urban spaces that become more defined and real and are talking about all of the water that's here and what does it mean for that for our communities to live in that way right mm -hmm. because I think that's I'm just saying I think that's important Yes. I would like you to consider it. <laughs> I am very, very important. Very, yes. very important. You are the head cheese. You will make whatever decisions you want to. I don't make decisions. I, I have an advisory <laughs> committee that will make the decisions and I will listen to their advice. <laughs> <clears throat> so when working, and you do a lot of youth work. Yes. Uh, does that not come up for you? Does it not say like, hey, we want to be on the land more and this programming oh, yeah. that you're giving us? Oh yeah, for sure. That's definitely like as far as like kids wanting to develop skills and, and do kinds of work and that kind of stuff yeah for sure they do want to be connected to land um, they want to explore and learn and dynamic and practice their culture and I think a lot of kids know that they can do that and they are entitled to do that wherever they are so like I've been in a lot of really cool situations where you've been in like you know the heart of Timmins in the middle of town and kids are listening to recordings of themselves singing at the big drum and they're doing that kind of thing right and it doesn't matter where they are that they can be who they want to be and they can do that kind of stuff right so I think that's really I think that's important I keep saying that but I'm it's the last day of the fiscal year my brain is fried but I think that that no fiscal year in the bush. <laughs> yeah. No fiscal year in the bush. Definitely, though, here for me in this capitalist slave society that we live in. Definitely here. Actually, you could <laughs> probably say there's a fiscal year in the bush. Like, there's just a point in time where you can't harvest yeah. something anymore, right? Like, that's the end yeah. of your fiscal year. No. <laughs> Better do all your accounting, see what you got left. Yeah, exactly. And, and as Haudenosaunee's who regularly have surplus food production, our calculations at the end of the year are quite <laughs> different than the Anishinaabeks. Yep. Are you saying we're in deficit? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Who's got... It's Nishnaubeks who've uh, managed to maintain jurisdiction of the city of Toronto. Listen, I was just in uh, Nishnaubek and Oji Cree territory. You can't grow corn there. What? You, you cannot... There's nothing... We go, we go rice there. Yeah, but you can't... There's no excess food production in your territory. I don't know about that. I don't see it. I'm 14 going... square kilometers of... <laughs> Uh, <laughs> cornfields that once stood around places like Six Nations. That's because Sullivan burned them all and genocided our people. Um, <clears throat> yes, let's not slip into this Nishnab <laughs> Mohawk debate right now. 
So, given that the, there, there is a desire among young people that you work with to be doing this type of work, but, you know, there's also the, the rootedness mm-hmm. or uh, mm-hmm. uh, uh, connection to urban places, like, what mm-hmm. do you need to have in place if you're going to, say you're going to take 15 Indigenous youth into the bush, onto the land, for a week of, you know, land-based education, and what, would, what kind of support would they need out there? Um, like they iPads? Would... <laughs> Is that what you mean? No, I think... Snapchat? They would... Oh, yeah, definitely going to be Instagramming and taking photos and whatever, posting all kinds of stuff. Because I think that's the way kids relate and... Or people in our modern times relate to one another. They transmit knowledge. They share and, you know, I think of all the great beading tutorials that are on Instagram these days. Tons of great work happening that way. Uh, you know, lots of education happening on Twitter. So I think that is, that can happen. But I think that, like, oh, if you're taking, like, 15 kids that have never been in the bush before into the bush, you're going to need a lot of bug spray, first of all. And you're going to need, like, that idea of people just being out of their comfort zone. And what does it mean to support someone that's, like, fundamentally at almost every hour, 24-7, just not in a comfortable space? They're going to have physiological and physical kind of things that you need to be considered right mm-hmm. and you have to feed them and you have to make sure bears don't oh, eat their food, food. I, yeah. I mean i just it is i am hung up on this because it just it's we have been raised in these settings where that is now our our comfort place that's what makes us comfortable and then removing ourselves from urban hard spaces onto the land that's uncomfortable i mean that just says so much to me and just speaks yeah. to the, just the need to mm-hmm. move into those spaces, and and yes, you know maybe I'm moving too quickly and I'm not not patient or deliberate enough, which is not a good thing. But it just mm-hmm. uh, to me that just that just speaks to the the need to be doing this. Work. Yeah, I think that what you'll definitely get, I think, whenever you do kind of event planning or anything, you have to operate from like a base level of like what are or examine what are the presumptions that you're making what kind of person are you going to draw to the event that you're creating based on how you know the agenda is laid out or what you're trying to accomplish like that will draw different people will see different value in that depending on what you're doing right so you have to make sure that you're considering what you're designing who might feel most comfortable at who might feel most challenged and so the people that you're looking to um draw might not necessarily feel drawn to the environment that you're creating right like I think a lot about policy spaces that want to have a lot of indigenous knowledge want to have indigenous knowledge keepers in it and they construct spaces that are not conducive to that right and I think that even if you're talking about like being in an urban environment there are definitely a lot of options within an urban environment that are you know, I'm thinking of, like, the longhouse room at OFIFC. I'm thinking about, um, there's a circle room at, in Laurier Branford where you can, like, trans, where you can, uh, shape a room in a longhouse and then the walls move and it becomes a round room. And those are the types of spaces that are being constructed, right? And, like, that, that, when you talk about these sterile or colonial things being synonymous with urban spaces, mm-hmm. that's what I don't agree with. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's, uh, I hear what you're saying there. And there is this element that, you know, what I'm describing, I admit, is 
somewhat romantic around the mm -hmm. edges because you know colonial mm -hmm. traumas have to be taken into consideration like you just can't bring mm -hmm. a handful of young people into the bush mm -hmm. and just think that they're going to be okay and not have some mm -hmm. sort of issues based on their own life mm -hmm. experience uh with that mm -hmm. transition so that's you know yeah. that's a big consideration as well which you and some of our other advisory mm -hmm. members have pointed out very loudly and i think one of the other things too is like we were talking about working with young people that the thing that doesn't that does not work for them that's not conducive to strong youth development is just coming in being there once and then going away right there has to be consistency and if especially if you're working with young people if this is the only opportunity that they're going to get to do that kind of work and they're not ever going to be able to go back if they're not going to be ever able to reconnect then that's going to cause a whole other amount of issues too right it's like oh you get this taste of like something really awesome and dynamic and then you can't maintain it or reconnect to it that's going to have an you know, unfortunately, a negative impact on them in the long run, right? You want to be able to consistently support them in what they're learning, right? So if you're going to teach them or provide them access, you're talking about taking young people out of their traditional, ter especially out of their traditional territory, right? So you're going to go and say like, okay, we're talking about indigeneity and relating to the land, not your land, someone else's land. You're going to learn someone else's cultural practices and how they relate to their land. And now you're going to go back and not have any functional way of establishing that for yourself. Well, is that reason enough not to do it? You know, so I, I think in yeah. the model that uh, that that mm -hmm. we're developing, we're mm -hmm. trying to do the long-term relationship. But I don't want to get too much yeah. into the, yeah. what we're doing specifically. I just want to have this yeah. sort of general conversation. But is mm -hmm. that so? Say you had a one-time opportunity. Mm -hmm. You know, would would that be reason enough not to go ahead with it? If you couldn't provide a sort of a longer-term uh, relationship with the land or longer-term relationship with the community. Is that, mm -hmm. you know, one-time things are just off the table. Don't create any programs for Indigenous youth to go onto the land. Like, Merchants of the Wild better mm -hmm. well have a season number two <laughs> with the same kids, right? Because mm -hmm. I, I, I think that's definitely a critique that I have too, right? And I think about, you know, you've asked me to think about what contributed to my education, what contributed to my learning, is that I did do a lot of these things, right? I did a lot of these conferences. I did a lot of these things that were supposed to be like youth events and whatever, whoever was putting them on, whatever kind of retreat. But when we did those things, we had like a very central group of people. Like we had the same youth leader taking us to all of these different events, right? So we would go and have all of these different experiences, but our leader was the same and our the peers were the same every time we went. So we would go to these like one-off events and that was like the centralized piece of the the group, right? And that's what created that sustainability for us, right? But if there's not any of that kind of consistency, then that's not doing good youth work, right? Like, I, there's... I probably said this before. It's not doing great youth work, but isn't it doing good work? No, work? Like, come out, come out with this one-time, one-week no, experience. Because the one, no. the biggest indicator of youth success is them feeling like they have one person that they can go to and talk to about anything. So if you create that, if you establish trust with a young person, that they feel like there's the only that one person that will feel or relate to them, and you take that away from them, that is going to have a negative effect on their outcome and their development. Yeah, but then they'll be able to learn how to start their own fires. That, yeah, that's not good youth work. 
<laughs> that's not based. That's not informed by youth developmental needs. No, it's not no, informed it's by not, you know not, best practice or wise practice when it comes. But to... But it's a good skill to burn things. <laughs> I'm, I'm not going to debate that with you because I do. I was a firefighter. I love when things burn. Okay. But like, I mean, that was just on. a really bad example. Come on. I'm, I'm talking about other other skills. I feel like I'll you talk about other skills. have I convinced you at all? Well, I think that uh, um, <laughs> or challenged your thinking. No, I think that we're we're generally on the same page around mm-hmm. issues of yes, urban spaces mm-hmm. are indigenous spaces, and they should, mm-hmm. you know, indigenous communities in urban spaces are not sacrifice zones. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm a little bit more resistant to the idea that that uh, um, we can be on the land in urban mm-hmm. spaces the same way we can be actually on the land. Um, That's because you just want to kill a moose. Uh, uh, or, or that indoor spaces didn't exist for indigenous people. Listen, if we were back... We had indoor spaces. If we Urbanization were like, yeah, exactly. existed, for sure. If for we sure, were 200 sure. years ago, I would be sitting in a longhouse beating. Uh, I wouldn't be doing anything outside. Okay, Are you enough. kidding me? Fair enough, fair enough. But, you know, at the same time, we have to talk about this specific example. Yes. You know, we're talking about land and water defense. And... So anyway, I think mm-hmm. both conversations can exist simultaneously. We're not mm-hmm. at, at odds over this and in extreme ways mm-hmm. and then also you know it's important to factor in that discussion about what youth need mm-hmm. and the support that they need and whether it makes sense to go onto the land mm-hmm. versus not but I really struggle with the not mm-hmm. um, when the opportunity exists anyway we're just about out of batteries and um, we're out of road we're out of road so this has been I would have liked to continue on with this conversation there's much more to say but uh, that's it for now and mm-hmm. this this ends season one of the Red Road, or is this season two of the Red Road now? This We're ends in transition. Okay. It never ends. All right. A circle in a hoop that never well, ends. Well, have fun in Vienna. Thank you. All right. Bye. You've been listening to the Red Road Podcast, created by Courtney Sky and Hayden King, sounding audio editing by Humble Man Recording. Find us on Twitter, Instagram, Google Play, SoundCloud, and iTunes. I've been driving in my Indian car. The pound of the wheels drumming in my brain. My dash is dusty, my plates are